here. Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my amazing host, the one and only Kai Sheffield, head of crypto over at Visa. How are you doing today, Kai? I am doing fantastic. It's been such a fun week in crypto. Super excited to get into the episode today and, and keep going down this rabbit hole. It's always a fun week in crypto, so it's great to have you with us. And in this show, we're looking at all things DeFi. We're going to be looking at what the heck is DeFi? How does it work? What can you do with decentralized finance? And how it's having a real world impact? And how much more could be done with it in time? To dig into this, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. Starting off with 11FS's very own Guerra Kawana, who's uh, welcome to the show. Would it be fair to say, Guerra, you are crypto curious? Speechless, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you actually recently published a blog at 11fs.com on stablecoins, DeFi, and how they can help African markets dealing with devaluation. So we're excited to bring your perspective to that to the discussion today. Alongside Guerra, we have Robert Leshner, you know, CEO of, of Compound. Thanks for joining us. You know, can you tell the listeners a little about Compound Finance before we start? Yeah, thrilled to be here. So I'm Robert Leshner, the founder of Compound. Um, Compound is a DeFi application. Uh, it's one of the oldest DeFi applications. And what it does is it creates interest rates for different cryptocurrencies that if you hold one of these cryptocurrencies, you can earn an interest rate on it. And if you'd like to borrow any of these crypto assets, they're available for you to borrow as well. And so if you're a trader or a hedge fund or somebody that's looking to put assets to work in new ways, you might borrow from Compound and the interest you pay goes to the other users who are providing assets. Amazing. Excited to, to get into you know these types of protocols in, in more detail, but let's get started. So, you know, today, you know, we wanted to start with definitions and then start to, to dive deeper as the discussion goes on uh, so that the audience can come with us, you know, on this journey. And we could tell the story of DeFi, understand what it is and you know how much opportunity can be unlocked with it. Uh, so first off, Let's try out some definitions. Simon, I know you've been playing around with a, a mental model for this. Kind of, how do you think about DeFi? Yeah, so I like to compare like centralized finance banking to DeFi and just kind of set it up. So if you think about a bank, when you save money in a bank, we call it savings. Sounds very familiar. But what you're actually doing is lending your money to that bank. In other words, it's their, it's your asset, it's their liability. They owe you that money back. So we call it savings, but actually it's, it's, it's not really that's happening. What they're then doing is they're lending that to somebody else. So fractional reserve banking has been around for some time. So even though you're saving it, it's actually being onward lent. And so the income that the bank makes is the difference between the savings rate they pay you, the APY or the APR, and the income they make from having lent your money out to somebody else. And the profit they then make is the income that they made, their revenues, minus their costs. And they're big organizations and they have lots of costs, um, staff, buildings, technology, licenses, all of that stuff. So they, you give them your money, they give you a rate, they lend it to somebody else at a higher rate, and the difference is their revenue, then take out their costs and you've got their profit. In DeFi, typically what happens when you save is you are lending that money to a protocol via something called a liquidity pool. So I might go to, the, probably the simplest example is Uniswap. I might take my US dollar coin and my Ethereum and put it into a liquidity pool. And then what happens is that protocol can lend that to somebody else, just like happened with the bank. 
the income the protocol makes is the difference between the APR, APY it pays you and the income it makes from lending that out theoretically at a higher rate. The profit that protocol makes is its income minus its costs. However, DeFi has almost no fixed costs. It is a protocol. It is software that is making this matching happen. And the economics of DeFi mix its profits and its costs and its shares all together with its community of users. And so this is where it gets really interesting. So DeFi rewards its investors differently to banks. There's four critical differences. The costs of the protocol are split between paying the developers and the team behind the protocol, uh, paying rewards to the savers, and funding grants to make the protocol better. So in other words, you have this reality where the shares that you have as a result of being uh, kind of part of that protocol can be used in a very different way to shares in a bank. So as a reward for lending to the pool, some protocols reward you with tokens. Imagine if by saving in a bank, they rewarded you with shares in that bank. That is that is a crazy concept. And those then can generate interest as well. So there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack there, but um, maybe Rob, tell me apart. How did I do? How do you, what do you think of my mental model there? I give you a B minus. Okay, so there are some things that you said that I think were actually really good. Okay, so you know, talking about the difference between how financial products and how financial markets operate in the existing financial system versus DeFi, I'll clarify for you. So when you think of like every traditional financial product and financial market, they're created and run with people and businesses. And those people and businesses are recording information in spreadsheets and in their databases. And as a user, you're really like trusting that this person or business um, is gonna do things correctly. They're not gonna choose to delete your balance or they're not gonna you know, get hacked and all the data is gonna vanish. You know, There's a lot of systems in place, but at the end of the day, it's spreadsheets and databases and legal contracts and just lots of people doing their best to create a financial product or service. DeFi is created and run with an entirely alternate approach. And it's completely built and managed and run with computer programs. And these computer programs are deployed onto a blockchain. And when you do this, Everybody can read the code or see how these computer programs operate. So whether you're building something that is, you know, borrowing and lending money or you're building something that facilitates trading or you're building something to like transfer art, whatever the application is, people can see how it works and that it works. And these computer programs are open source, they're immutable, they're transparent. Anybody can interact with them and anybody can build on top of them. And so DeFi are these computer programs living on a blockchain that run business logic. But instead of it being run by like scores of people inside buildings with spreadsheets, it's all being run with these little computer programs. And it's a much more efficient way to build financial products and markets. You know, Simon touched on a lot of the advantages. Um, the other advantages are that, you know, um, they're open and permissionless and people can extend them with new use cases and new functionality to create what's right now starting to be a very advanced financial ecosystem um, that runs in parallel to all the products we know. So maybe Guerra, kind of who uses DeFi today? Kind of where are we? Like, is this something that mainstream consumers are interacting with? Are these just sophisticated traders? How do you think about just at this moment of time, you know, who the end customers are and how that might start to evolve. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at it via the evolution of like blockchain or, or crypto in the mainstream, in my mind, we're at like tier three. So tier one was, was when, you know, people who were using crypto and blockchain were like super technical, like super like niche communities. No one really knew what, what it was about, what, what, who was using it. People were using it to buy drugs, launder money buy guns and stuff. So that was, t- that was, you know, the first phase, I guess. And then the second phase is kind of we're coming out of it or are still in it right now. So, you know, crypto and, and people using like uh, crypto and blockchain for financial reasons. So as, as an asset class, so using Bitcoin and Ethereum as, as a, to, to store, you know, obviously store value and, and reap the benefits and that, you know, brought along so many scams and, Oh, all this confusion. <laughs> and now we're at phase three where, you know, I feel we're just beginning. Uh, so not even 1% done yet, like 0.001% done, uh, which is DeFi. So just really dethroning the current financial system. So the first two phases are pretty known, well-known in the mainstream. We all know what's happened there. But DeFi is still quite in the very early stages. I think we still have a chasm of like, of, of knowledge that, that needs to be crossed for DeFi to really be adopted in a mainstream manner. But I think we're, we're definitely on the way. Maybe Robert, like if I'm a consumer, like I want to use DeFi, like what does that mean? What do I have to do? Where do I go? What is that experience like? And how do you see that, that changing? Yeah, that's a great question. So in a lot of ways, DeFi is very similar to the early internet, where for the most part, the people interacting with DeFi are very technically sophisticated and they're very enthusiastic about this new market and new technology. So the way you interact with DeFi today primarily is you have a crypto wallet. That crypto wallet, you have your own crypto in it. Um, You're managing the private keys and the risk of that wallet. And you're then interacting with a smart contract on a blockchain. You typically do this through websites that serve as these like interfaces between you know, this smart contract in your wallet. Um, Oftentimes, you know, they basically, you know, make it a lot easier to interact with these computer programs, but you're essentially using a special website, um, bringing your own crypto and clicking buttons, you know, at the end of the day. And, you know, you oftentimes have to interact with a community to validate that the website and the smart contracts do what people think they do and what you expect them to do. Uh, Because if, you know, you click the wrong button, your crypto can disappear. Um, there's still a lot of you know financial risk involved, and you're then interacting with these systems that you try to become familiar with. You know, well-known systems like Compound that have been around for a long time. You know, people know how to interact with them pretty easily. But new DeFi applications are built and launched and come and go all the time. And so, you know, this is really a playground for the sophisticated. Um, over time, it's getting easier and easier to interact with DeFi as instead of having to store your own crypto and interact with these contracts directly, DeFi is starting to move into new financial products and new financial applications. So eventually, you know, you're going to gain the benefits of DeFi, whether it's earning interest or being able to trade or being able to transfer assets in interesting ways, not by interacting with smart contracts, but by using systems and platforms you already know. So you might, you know, interact with DeFi through Coinbase or through your bank or through another application um, without having to go through all the steps of interacting directly. And that's increasingly occurring is that the complexity is starting to become abstracted away. But for the most part, the, you know, at the earliest stages, it's a very you know, technically demanding task. 
I saw recently, um, I think it was yourselves involved, actually, Rob, that um, Current.com, one of the neobanks in the US, is looking to add um, stablecoin savings and yield to to their neobanks. So this would look and feel like a banking application or fintech app that I'm using day to day for my regular everyday expenses, except I have a savings rate that seems higher inside of that. Um, unpack what's going on behind the scenes there a little bit for us. Yeah, absolutely. Behind the scenes, there's many different partners coming together to be able to take something that seems extremely simple, take this interest rate that happens to live in DeFi and bring it to customers that don't even have to know what DeFi is and how it works. There's custody, there's the transfer of funds, there's the conversion between dollars and stable coins, there's interacting with a protocol like Compound, and there's businesses sort of like being built in between all of these steps to make the process as seamless as possible. So end users just say, hey, I'm getting an interest rate that's much better than what I'm used to. And in between, there's a whole you know, coalition of different companies from current to compound to you know, uh, custody providers that handle all of the complex parts. So the end users don't have to store their own crypto. They don't have to interact with DeFi protocols themselves. They just get the benefit of it without the complexities of it. And then Guerra, why might this be helpful in an emerging market context? And how do you think about the development of DeFi in a market based upon where the financial infrastructure exists today? Yeah, so definitely, I think that that, emerging markets, the global south really uh, is the most ripe market or space for DeFi adoption, like at least mainstream DeFi adoption, mainly because first of all, you know, People are a lot of folks in, in the global south are underbanked or even unbanked, so just like a huge market opportunity there. And then you know you we can talk about other ways like uh, you know introducing financial services uh, that that may not be available in those markets. So uh, one that I'm I'm really passionate about really is 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 how DeFi will solve for uh, currency devaluation. So. If you're in a country like America or the UK, uh, your currencies are quite stable and uh, you can wake up tomorrow kind of expecting that your pound or the dollar in your pocket is not going to devalue too much, or at least the pound or the dollar in your bank account is not going to waver too much. So Africa is really the most worthy market for mainstream adoption of decentralized finance. So really, we can talk a lot about different issues uh, facing the global south and Africa and, and in particular. Uh, so we can talk about the broken remittance ecosystem and, and how DeFi and, and crypto really can be used to, to just bypass a lot of the, the fees and the, the clunkiness of services like Western Union. And we can we can talk about how folks are underbanked or even unbanked in the global south. So using DeFi to introduce things like uh, financial services that weren't available before. Uh, so specifically, I'm pretty bullish on stable coins as a savings vehicle within the global south. Uh, And we're already starting to see this happen in Nigeria. Uh, So Nigeria is a country that has had an incredibly volatile currency, the Naira. So the the Naira has, you know, it's pretty famously been volatile over the last uh, year or so and has a pretty insane like story history about like, you know, the shortage of USD in the country and how expensive it is for people to to hold uh, foreign currencies within that market. So I see, you know, this a uh, real world application really of this as being a savings vehicle for people. So the Nigerian Naira devalued quite heavily last year, and that means that people's savings uh, went down. So all, all that they earned in interest just was wiped away purely based on the fluctuation of, of their currency. So 
introducing, it's already happening right now. So, you know, a company called Zend Finance is allowing their community banks in Nigeria to provide their customers with uh, interest on their savings via using stable coins. So definitely see this as being like the, the global South and Africa in particular as a really untapped market for this. If you've got something that A, deals with the volatility and then B, helps you actually save through that volatility, that could be hugely powerful. Kai, um, I'm going to turn it around to you for a second because there's often this worldview that the world is becoming decentralized. But as you look at this, who who else is involved? Like, Can centralized institutions be involved in DeFi? Is this a software upgrade or a worldview change? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I, I think there's still a question of, you know, what does the consumer experience look like? And you know, as Robert mentioned, you know, today, you know, it's very sophisticated individuals that are going direct to directly to the smart contract. They're using non-custodial wallets, they know how to manage private keys themselves. They know how to look at the smart contract and you know it's transparent. They can read the code, they could see what the risks are, and they're able to make the decisions and, and understand how to interact with them. But over time, as this goes more mainstream, I think there will be a role for you know trusted brands and, and wallets that can help you know be the interface and the way that a consumer can interact. As well as when you think about like one of my favorite descriptions of, of DeFi is the, the electric capital folks that say this is you know GitHub for finance. They're gonna be just an infinite amount of new financial services that exist. And so I think there is a role in helping consumers choose which ones should you interact with. You know, if you want to be able to get a loan based upon your crypto's collateral, you know, there might be 12 different protocols that you can do that on. What are the risks between different protocols? Which one is the best for which use case? So I think there very, very much is still a role for, you know, wallets, fintechs, institutions to play, you know, between a consumer and the software that, you know, provide these financial services on the back end. Yeah, great points. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Is it an or? Is it DeFi or CeFi? Or do, will we see some hybrid thereof? Oh, it's absolutely going to be a hybrid um, long term. So right now we have, you know, for the most part, you know, existing financial markets and products, and then we have DeFi. And the lines between these two are blurring. As there's more abstractions that go on, eventually as capital flows between traditional markets and DeFi in and out more rapidly, as eventually it becomes easier to traverse them and to combine them in interesting ways, eventually, whether it's finance or decentralized finance, it's just going to become one set of markets and products. And DeFi is just better like financial infrastructure and rails for business to be conducted on long term, you know, instead of things being run through spreadsheets, um, they're going to be run through open source computer programs. And it's just going to lead to a more efficient, safer and better financial ecosystem. And you're not going to care what, you know, infrastructure a product is running on as a consumer. You're just going to want to know that it's safe, that it works and that it gives you exactly what you're looking for. And so everything is flowing in the direction of DeFi, but CeFi, DeFi, these words are going to go away. I think in 20 years, we're just going to have finance. And, you know, it's going to happen to be running on better backend infrastructure than it does today. Interesting stuff. Well, listen, um, we are going to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors and we'll come back in on this one because uh, there's still plenty left for us to unpack. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. 
Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Alrighty, welcome back to the show, everybody. In this second half, we're going to take a look at some of the practical applications in a little bit more detail. Kai, what's your favorite practical application of DeFi that's out there? So maybe just one thought experiment that, that's helpful for me is like trying to think about what can you do with this new financial infrastructure in DeFi that you can't really do today with you know existing banks and, and the products that we have. And the example I like to give is what if you all you cared about was getting the best interest rate you could possibly get you know in your savings account? And you wanted to ensure that at all times your money was earning the best interest rate it could possibly get. Well, you know, you can't really go out and open, you know, 50 different savings accounts and then as the rates of those savings accounts change, be able to move money from one savings account to another 24/7 365. So your money's always earning the best interest rate. And it's almost like this robo advisor for yield, but then when you have this, you know, these financial protocols and you have instead of a bank, you know, it's a protocol like Compound, and then you have you know multiple other services that are offering yield on your money, and your money is in a stable coin. You could actually write code and you can program your stable coins to move between these protocols. So at all times you're getting the highest yield. And so that's one example of just you know people in fintech have talked about you know self-driving money. Uh, for a long time, but there've always been these barriers that prevented it from happening. So maybe Robert, curious how you think about that of, you know, how is it possible to do some of these more, you know, programmatic, you know, strategies, you know, that can help an individual consumer? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of things that enable these programmatic strategies in the first place. So the first one is that DeFi applications are open, which means that anyone can interact with them. Anyone can build them into their own financial products or financial services and you know they're permissionless so you know if i want to basically work with a protocol i don't have to develop a bd partnership first i can just start using them and what this means is that you know there's a competitive open nature to these systems that if anyone has an idea to help consumers in a certain way or make a more efficient financial product they can tie these different protocols together um, very easily and very quickly. So if I see an opportunity to, you know, potentially interact with these things, you know, I can spin up a product. It's not a multi-year cycle of innovation like a lot of fintech is. In some cases, it's potentially a multi-day or multi-week process of innovation. So that's that's the most important thing that enables all of this in the first place. Um, and the second is that you know, these are systems that are designed to be programmed. Um, the fact that you know this is running on a blockchain and it's all like computer code makes it you know very straightforward to have computers and servers and systems operating them. And so the second really powerful thing is that all of this is designed to be programmatic out of the box. And so the end result is you have 
you know, systems like what Kai is talking about, where, you know, if he wants to create an incredibly intelligent process to optimize, you know, financial systems, that's feasible. Um, that's going to increasingly be the case. And the end result is that our financial markets are just going to be a lot smarter um, because the obstacles to make them smarter are much lower. And they're going to be, you know, doing more intelligent things 24-7, 365 days out of a year and globally in nature. Um, right now, a lot of financial markets are extremely narrow. They're closed off. It's hard to improve them. You know, the end result of all of this and all of DeFi is you'll have big global markets that are super efficient, super cheap, and super fair. I love all of those points. I think the global 24-7 permissionless combo is is really quite potent when you put it all together. And one of the classic phrases for, for that concept has been money Legos. Like if, if Robin Hood builds a feature, Charles Schwab can't use that feature. But actually, if somebody builds it in, in DeFi and that smart contract is out there, then somebody else can come pick that up, edit it, fork it, whatever they want to do, and build a community around that, such as hence the, the money Legos thing that kind of gets thrown around. Guerra, you have some kind of specific use cases that you think might be interesting as well um, on, on the back of some of this stuff. Yeah, so definitely. I mean, you know, earlier I talked a little bit about DeFi and specifically stablecoins uh, helping um, people in the global south uh, hedge against um, uh, things like uh, currency devaluation. But, uh, you know, besides currency devaluation, other use cases that, that are up and running right now already include general crypto trading and, and investing. So allowing folks who may not have access to, say, for example, the U.S. stock market or the, or the New York Stock Exchange or, or tools like Robinhood or free trade and allowing them to, to just really get involved in, in trading crypto. Uh, so there's tons of crypto exchanges that, that you know, are, allow people to, to really to get involved in, and, and build wealth. Another really great use case that's still quite early is something, a really cool concept called uh, community inclusion currencies. So there is one right now in Kenya called Serafu, and there's, there's, there's a few that are being planned and have been there's lots of chatter about them across the continent and even across the global south. Uh, Pakistan as well, I believe. But they're basically a, a currency, a cryptocurrency that exists within a community that allows the, that money or at least uh, resources to stay within the community without making people, you know, touch their fiat currency and allowing people to, to communities to thrive and, and stay afloat during tough economic times. So, you know, I'm a shopkeeper. I can I can exchange um, almost even like at a barter level with someone who sells you know honey and the beekeeper is able to exchange with someone to fix his bike. Uh, so ca- keeping that the dollar I guess or or the the coin within the community. Um, so that's that's a that's a really really cool use case. I think there's a couple challenges still for like again like super mainstream adoption and that's like I said before the the knowledge chasm and then you know the big big R word <laughs> regulation. Uh, so, for example, Nigeria has has been quite uh, bearish on on crypto and blocked uh, Bitcoin. And South Africa, I don't know if you've heard about this, but recently, but you know, there's been a couple scams across the continent. But in South Africa, people losing tons and tons of their savings via scams. So, Robert, I I keep hearing this term, you know, yield farming. Like, what does that mean? Like, I I feel like yield is now becoming a popular word around consumers. It used to just be, oh, I guess I get a little bit of interest in my savings account. Is yield now becoming a primitive? Like, what is yield farming? How are people interacting with it? That's a great question. So, you know, 
there's really two pieces of this phrase. You know, there's the yield and then there's the farming piece. So yield is exactly as you describe it. It's a rate of return over time. Um, farming, you know, I think it sort of comes from like the video game communities originally where people were farming like World of Warcraft gold or they were farming for loot or whatever. The farming comes from the fact that people are essentially like actively participating in something in order to uh, achieve that yield. And so when you bring these together and you look at what's happening in DeFi, you can see that people are using the phrase yield farming to refer to actively using different crypto protocols in order to generate a return, whether it's, you know, providing liquidity or whether it's, you know, receiving governance tokens or, you know, ownership of these protocols or whether it's, you know, earning interest or whether it's, you know, combining DeFi protocols in really complex ways where you're maybe, you know, borrowing from one and earning interest in another with the assets you borrowed. Like it all comes together in the phrase yield farming to mean this like semi-active process of earning a return in crypto. Oftentimes, without, you know, necessarily like taking extremely large risks, you know, um, you know, crypto is typically dominated by people like going long on a crypto asset, just buying a bunch of it in hopes of going up. Farming really refers to this like active, you know, participation in order to, you know, grind out a, you know, return over time. Um, and so the yield comes from these protocols and um, it's now one of the more common phrases and activities within crypto is to yield farm. So it almost sounds like a, a customer acquisition strategy. Uh, and so, you know, you have protocols that are rewarding consumers for using it, but then they're rewarding it with ownership in the protocol. And so it's not just a new way to interact with the product, but it's a new way to build and govern it. So can you talk, you mentioned governance tokens, like, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, and Simon alluded to it earlier um, when he said, you know, imagine if you like earned shares in the bank by being a customer of the bank. It's very similar to that process. And, you know, if, you know, Bank of America offered you shares of Bank of America for being a customer, people might, you know, call it, you know, bank farming, you know, by like, you know, having an account at that bank. Um, I, I think that's the right analogy in a lot of ways. So a lot of protocols um, and this started with Compound in the summer of 2020, you know, distribute ownership of the protocol directly to the users. And so these governance tokens, which allow you to basically exert influence and control and set the direction of a protocol and its parameters, these tokens are part of the yield that people receive. People have figured out how to like, you know, value them or trade them um, as a component of their income. And so you have people using protocols because of the ownership that comes with the usage of the protocol. Um, sometimes this is a small incentive to use a protocol. Sometimes it's a large incentive. Sometimes it's no incentive at all. But people are, you know, actively evaluating these opportunities as part of this sort of, you know, income decision making process. You know, it'd almost be like choosing whether or not to be a customer of Bank of America or JP Morgan based on which one is offering more shares of the organization to its customers. And you sort of end up creating a weird competition for who can be fairer to its customers because there's the classic example of uh, Uniswap and SushiSwap. So Uniswap didn't have a governance token and um, SushiSwap comes along and, and has a different approach. And then, of course, Uniswap ups its game and you start to see this this sort of battle for attention and customer acquisition in terms of how they reward their users and how much control the users of the platform tend to have on the direction of the platform 
itself, which is which is a completely different model. And I can imagine um, Guerra said the R word. Regulators might might struggle with that one in the, in the early days. Um, but I think there's a lot to unpack there that we can play with, Kai. Yeah, I, I was just going to add that you know if you think about you know, the number of of product managers you know listening to FinTech Insider and Blockchain Insider, and just this notion of a decision around how a financial product operates is moving from an individual product manager to an entire community of users of that product. And on one hand, that sounds crazy. Like, how do they know? On the other hand, it's almost like this crowdsourced intelligence of what does the community want to see? Where should that product go? And then there's this ownership that the people who use that product are even more passionate about it because they were helping to, to drive it. So, Guerra, I'm, I'm curious, just kind of back to you, you know, thinking about you know, emerging markets, it seems like you know that can both kind of lower the barrier to entry to build a financial product. But how do you see that community kind of governance process, you know, being something that that could really you know help in markets where financial infrastructure doesn't exist? Yeah. So I guess yeah, you're right. So financial infrastructure is, does not exist really in in parts of of the global, you know, many parts of the global south. But one thing that is really really strong are community ties. So this you see this in a lot of you know manifesting in so many other ways in the financial se- sector. So even like in savings, uh, people have savings groups where uh, you know, uh, or even like lending groups where uh, you are saving and lending within a community. So uh, your neighbors, which kind of you know really increases trust. So you're not really going to default on a loan to the guy who sells you pineapples. Uh, so I see this kind of it really does nicely flow into, you know, this trust model and governance model can, it's it's like, before I said, one of the challenges is the knowledge chasm, the knowledge gap, but these, a lot of these communities do have that trust, do have that governance already baked into the way, the way that, that they exist. Um, but I, I wonder if I could turn it around to, to you guys about like provider or uh, platform supremacy. So are we ever going to see another Google or, um, you know, large exchange or company or, or is DeFi going to do exactly what it be, what exactly what it's meant, meant to be in quotes, like the decentralized uh, dethroning of, of, of these big companies? Well, I'll start by saying that, you know, I, I expect DeFi is absolutely going to create, you know, different types of financial entities and financial products. Um, I don't think it's going to look like the next Google. I think it's going to have the outcome and the impact of the next Google, though. So, you know, I think, you know, we're, you know, we're very rude in thinking about these very classical corporations that, you know, wind up having 200,000 employees and, you know, conquer the earth. I think what DeFi is going to create is it might create financial markets or financial products that are huge, just absolutely important and dependent upon, but it's not going to look like a traditional corporation with 200,000 employees. It might look like a decentralized group of 50 developers around the world working to create something that's massive at scale. Um, and I, I think it's going to you know, have huge ramifications and create big results, but I don't think it'll look like we expect corporations to look. So that that you say there, Rob, is kind of uh, exciting and challenging in equal measure, depending on your perspective, because on the one hand, those big 200,000 person organizations, you know, there's a legal framework around it. People understand it. If something goes wrong, the consumer has recourse, there's insurance, it's very well understood. Um, And there's recourse now emerging in the DeFi space. But but Kai, Rob, I'd love your views on the R word. You know, where is this subject in the mind of, of regulators? If there are 50 
50 developers spread around the world, that might sound scary to the uninitiated. Yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely you know top of mind you know for many regulators and policymakers. And I think the, the entire crypto industry is. I think one of the challenges is that it just moves so quickly uh, that it's you know because this is open source technology because it's available you know everywhere you know it really takes time to learn about it to follow it to use the products and understand the implications. And so I think that's where, you know, being able to, to educate and, and have the time for the industry uh, to, to, to communicate what the value could be, as well as, you know, how risks should be mitigated. And I think that, you know, there's a role for, you know, the public and the private sector working together, looking at what are the benefits and, and what are the risks. Um, but it's, it just moves so quickly that it, you, know, you have to have a, a different mindset as you, as you look at it. Well, I think the nature of regulation is going to change as well. So, you know, historically, you know, regulators focus on two things, making sure that investors are protected and making sure that, you know, major financial market participants don't collapse because they took on too much risk or they misbehaved or they, you know, didn't create a safe enough bank, right? And when you see these crypto-based systems evolving, they, in some ways, you know, already check a lot of the boxes that I think a regulator wants in that they can be safe for the customers, the users, and everyone interacting with them. They can be transparent, which is one of the things that a lot of financial products and markets aren't today. They can be fair in a way that most financial products are not fair. And they can operate without the risk of human fraud or abuse or mistakes. And so I think already DeFi, when done correctly, is something that, you know, in the future, regulators will want to see. They'll, I think, eventually demand that something is built looking like DeFi as opposed to, you know, a riskier structure for it. But they're going to have to regulate different things. And this is where I think, you know, there's actually like very unique risks of DeFi that don't exist in the existing you know, financial market. So you, you touched on recourse. Well, why is recourse even necessary? It's when something goes wrong. Right now, with DeFi, if it's built correctly and it's open source and it's inspectable, you can make sure that the system doesn't go wrong. If it works, it'll work forever for the next hundred years, right? And it won't have the same mistakes or things that go wrong. But that process of launching something new is fraught with risk. A lot of times, early and younger DeFi protocols do have like technical flaws in them where money gets exfiltrated or lost or destroyed or frozen or broken, right? And I think regulators in trying to create a safe financial system built on DeFi in the future are not going to be trying to sort of police the same things that they do today. They're going to be required to police different things. Has it been built to the standard necessary that it's safe for users? You know. Um, can things go wrong and were the steps taken to ensure that they don't go wrong or won't go wrong or if they do go wrong, you know, like it's fixable. And so I think they're going to be required to sort of regulate things differently. They're going to want to. And we're going to think about DeFi not in the same box that we think about existing financial products, but we're going to think about it as something new that has to be viewed with a fresh set of thinking and eyes. 
I love that point. I think if the risks are different, the controls need to be different. But actually, the temptation is to take the controls from the analog financial system and apply them to this new digital global 24-7 financial system. And actually, that's a that's a journey that we're all going to go on together, which is exciting. Kai, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, I know there's a few of the points we wanted to get to. And I, I really love your your sort of like where we've got to so far in this conversation. What are the What are the other bits of DeFi that we think we need to explore? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is just the evolution of kind of crypto in cryptocurrencies as an asset that you just buy and hold. You know, maybe you send it to somebody else and as a form of collateral. And the fact that there are, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who may never have gotten a credit card before, you know, they may not have a credit history. Maybe they're a teenager, but they have some amount of a crypto asset. And now that crypto asset is something they can use as collateral to be able to borrow dollars against. And so curious how, how you both think about, you know, is cryptocurrency, you know, really a, a future form of collateral that more and more people will use to be able to access capital, particularly, you know, when they don't have a, a credit score? Absolutely. I think, you know, over time, because, you know, crypto is open to everybody, it really can act in some ways like an absolutely universal bank account in some sense, where if everybody has access to it, it's going to be, you know, a better foundation to build financial systems with. You know, in a lot of ways, you know, over time, it's going to become more and more normalized and standardized. And, you know, crypto is going to be collateral. It's going to be able to be used, you know, in any financial product. I think it serves as this like extremely efficient financial primitive because it's programmable, because it's global, because it's open in a way that, you know, your closed off dollars today are not. Yeah, it's exciting times, isn't it, for what that could mean in time. Guerra, your thoughts? No, I fully agree. Uh, Robert, Robert said everything <laughs> that, that I, I really think. And yeah, I think I like to want to zero in on the collateralization piece. So yeah, definitely allowing people who may exist in, in say a different market or uh, or maybe you know underbanked or even like young or or a new new newcomer to a country an immigrant allowing them to really uh use their crypto or at least like you know their 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 history uh and trust that they've built as like to to give to provide them access to like financial services and other things too when you think about lending historically somebody had to have potentially a bank account which meant they needed documentary evidence of their existence in a passport form. If you don't have a passport, you're not included. If you don't live anywhere near a bank that can uh, do that, you're not included. And then you're under Britain based primarily on your income, not your behavior. But actually with crypto, what I can see is your behavior, not just with this bank, but any behavior you've had anywhere in the network, provided you are willing to connect that. And actually the issue becomes more about privacy than it does about transparency. And that's really, really exciting because suddenly different people People in different parts of the world can start taking risk on other people in other parts of the world. It's a really interesting business, I think, called Goldfinch that works with local lenders in, in, in the global south and helps lending to small businesses. But its investors are actually people in the DeFi capital market space who are looking to deploy that for yield. And so there are some really interesting models starting to emerge across all of that. Guys, I, I could talk to you about this all day and we've barely scratched the surface here but that's that's us out of time and that wraps up today's discussion so i want to thank you guys all so much for joining me um where can people find out more about you and your companies let's start with kai visa.com slash crypto uh guerra 
uh, lovefs.com and I'm on Twitter at notwera. Brilliant. And Rob, you and, and you and Compound? You can follow Compound at compound.finance and you can follow me on Twitter at rleshner. Uh, and what a fire Twitter account you do have indeed. Uh, you'll find me at SYTaylor on Twitter uh, or you can find us of course at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave a review. It helps other people find the show and it helps make the show better as well. And if you can't wait till the next episode, we do have a heck of a back catalog of previous episodes if I can say it correctly. And you can get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto as always if you want to join the conversation find us on social media just search for 11fs blockchain insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com thank you very much and bye for now